So, to drop you in on the Gospel of John at chapter 12, it's kind of like dropping you into a movie about halfway in. Has this ever happened to you? You're watching a show or a movie and you're halfway into it, let's say an hour into a two-hour movie, and somebody comes into the room and they, oh, you're watching a movie, and they sit down next to you and they're like, so, what's happening? Why is it happening? Who is she? How is she connected? And you're like, (laughs) but there's no way they could know, right? I mean, I don't blame them. I've been that person, actually, who's dropped in on it. Well, that's kind of where we are here. Even if you've come to worship the last few weeks, online or in person last week, no matter how you've experienced Lent, we haven't, like, built the narrative toward John chapter 12. So far, we've been in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, John chapter 1, John, like, we've been in in the beginnings of a couple different Gospels, and now all of a sudden it's like, poof, take you to John chapter 12. So, let me catch you up on the movie. And to do so, I'm not actually going to, like, recount the first 12 chapters, but I'm going to go back to chapter 11, because I think that tells us a lot about where we are in chapter 12, verse 20. Okay, so chapter 11, I say chapter 11, some of you are like, Lazarus, but I don't think of, this, of Scripture like that. So when I say Lazarus, maybe that jogs memory for many of us. Lazarus, of course, has died uh, by the beginning of chapter 11. Jesus has shown up a little bit late. And remember, the sisters, Mary and Martha, each of them at different times say, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And of course, this is one of the most human stories, profoundly human stories we have of Jesus because he weeps at hearing that Lazarus is dead. This may have been a friend of Jesus. But it's also one of the most profoundly divine statements and stories that we ever have from Jesus because Jesus doesn't just cry. He also then is able to resurrect this Lazarus from the dead. And so this moment elicits a couple different responses from those who were there and those who hear about it. One of the responses is, wow, this is really the Messiah. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to believe what this guy's talking about. And many Jews respond in that way, but some don't. Some are like, well, this is powerful, but this power scares me. And so they go tell on him, basically, to the Pharisees. And they say, do you know what he did and what it looked like and how it felt for all these people to say, I believe in you as Messiah, as who you are, Jesus? And so the Pharisees hear this. They don't hear any good news. They don't see anything good about this. They only feel fear. And what they feel fear about, Caiaphas puts words to. He says, he's one of the Pharisees, and he says, you know, if we let people keep believing like this, They're going to destroy our holy place, and they're going to destroy our nation. Well, that's obviously not good. Now, that's not necessarily true that if people come to believe, that's what's going to happen. But that's, that's where Caiaphas is, and that's where the Pharisees are. They're like, yeah, you're right. And so, they make a plan. And you know what the plan is. Kill him. So that's the plan. We're going to kill Jesus whenever we have a chance now. And they have to do that carefully because a lot of people are coming to believe in him. And so Jesus and his disciples catch wind of the plan, and they go to the wilderness. That's what the Gospel of John tells us, whatever that means. Up to the north. This is what political dissidents do, right? 
Now, maybe it's kind of hard to imagine Jesus as a political dissident. And, of course, that word means uh, against authority. It's someone who's on the business end of law and order. I think oftentimes we might have an image in our mind's eye that Jesus is this, only this godly figure with great posture and a very white, much cleaner than my robe, and just kind of walking around with hands folded and a large crowd around him just listening to every word as he makes his way through a village or something. And I, I think in our minds, I oftentimes he's just, you know, hands folded and then he teaches and he heals and he loves and he does so very appropriately, right? Whatever that means. But that's not the picture that the Gospel of John paints. Instead, we've got Jesus teaching and healing and loving in ways that are very inappropriate according to the powers that are. I mean, this guy is healing on the Sabbath. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's doing things wrong. And so that's why he is in the place where he is, in the wilderness with kind of a mark on his head. Get him is where the Pharisees are. So once he's in the wilderness and kind of in hiding a bit, there's a, a, a statement put out to all of uh, Jews from the Pharisees saying, if you know where he is, you got to tell us because we want to arrest him. Kind of reminds me of when Herod is like, yeah, tell me, and this is in the Gospel of Matthew, completely different Gospel, but when he says, yeah, if you know where this little you know, baby is, let me know because I want to pay him homage. You know, same kind of deal. And so they want to arrest him. That puts a lot of people in a pretty weird position, Right? Do I tell the Pharisees that I know where Jesus is? Or do I continue to follow and honor this guy that can resurrect people, this guy that's been doing amazing signs? Jesus takes that difficult question away by coming out of hiding himself. And the next story we're told then in chapter 11 is he makes his way back to Bethany where he raised Lazarus. And he has a meal with Lazarus and his sisters. And people see that he's there having a meal. It's only five and a half kilometers from Jerusalem. And so he's basically come close to the lion's den. As he's there in Bethany and people have heard about this is what's happening, he then just makes his way to Jerusalem. Like again, taking all, all, these, all this quandary of do we tell on him or don't we, he just he goes himself. As he makes his way toward Jerusalem, people start taking palm fronds. You know this story. We're going to remember it next week. It's the beginning of chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. It's Palm Sunday. And so he makes his way during the Passover festival toward Jerusalem. And as he does, he's on a donkey, and all these people start waving palm fronds at him. And you know what they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means you're the one who's going to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is where the Pharisees would put palm to forehead, and they'd say, this is exactly the thing we were talking about. King of Israel? This is going to get us in huge trouble. Like, this is why Rome would come in and destroy our holy place and destroy our nation. They've got some idolatry going on, an idolatry that's pretty familiar to many of us, I would think, maybe in ourselves or people that we see. You know, it's tempting to worship our holy place or to revere our nation. That's what the Pharisees want to do. They want to worship their holy place, revere their nation above Jesus. So Jesus makes his way into the gates of Jerusalem, 
during the Passover. This is no coincidence or accident that it, this is the time when Jesus would come. You've got to remember the Passover is when Jews remember God delivering them from Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Like this is, this is their big moment in all of history where they see and know God most because they've been delivered. Well, now Jesus comes into the gates basically making a statement of, we need deliverance once again. Maybe you could say deliverance from Rome. Maybe you could say deliverance from the law and order of the Pharisees. Maybe you could say deliverance from sin, death, and the power of the devil. However you want to talk about the deliverance that they need, it's all of the above is what Jesus offers. Individual, community, cosmic. That's the kind of salvation that Jesus is bringing. So he's come into Jerusalem with a mark on his head, and as he's there, that's where we come upon chapter 12, verse 20. That's when Greeks show up. That's the first thing chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 20 tells us. Then some Greeks came to see Jesus. That might not sound like a big deal. And uh, by the way, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily from Greece. It means they're non-Jews. Some non-Jews came to see Jesus. So now you've got all the Jews' eyes open, ears open for what Jesus is going to do, for what he's going to say next, and you've got non-Jews in the city. So everybody's gathered. So we've basically come to a point in the gospel that is a huge hinge or, or turning point. History is full of these moments where all the preparations have been made, and now is the hour. I mean, I, I, could, I could name lots of different times where the hour has come, right? Like it's go time. The show starts now. We all have had these moments in our own lives. We've made preparations for months or years or whatever it is, and we come to that moment where, okay, it's time to do it, whatever it is now. I, I, maybe the most obvious example I have in my own life is the birth of our first child, for like eight and a half months, we had bought a different car. We had gotten the car seat. We had overhauled the whole nursery. The house was different. All, everything was different. My heart, mind, soul, house, car, everything had to be changed. And then you get to that, that night before. She was born November 14th. Get to November 13th, like 11 p.m. Because why start contractions during the day when you can do it in the middle of the night? And as those contractions started, it was like, okay, it is time right? The hour has come. Well, that's where Jesus is. Jesus has prepared through his ministry, through all these signs he's accomplished, he's prepared for this moment, a moment when the whole world, Jews and non-Jews alike, have gathered to look and listen and imagine what is this about? What is happening? And so Jesus immediately wants to tell them what's happening. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he says. And just in case anybody thinks, oh, I know what this means. This means the good times are going to start rolling because this guy's the Messiah. And if it's time to be glorified, here we go. This is why I'm here. And it's, he nips that right in the bud. He says, the hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what that means is it's like a single grain of wheat. Is it? Is it like a single grain of wheat, Jesus? It's like a single grain of wheat because if the single grain of wheat just lays there, it's just a single grain of wheat. But if it goes into the ground and dies, then it bears much fruit. And everybody's, uh, that may have surprised some because they might have thought, 
we're just going to bear fruit without any pain or suffering. You're Jesus. You're going to, like, take care of all that, right? You're going to protect me, right? But the examples Jesus uses keep being like this. He said things like this to his disciples already, but now he's saying it to non-Jews and Jews alike for everybody to hear. Here's what I'm about. Here's what this whole thing is about. We need to keep loving. I'm going to keep loving bigger, bolder, braver. And as I do, it's going to run up against these authorities that already hate me. They've already got it out for me. And so this single grain is going to die. But from that death bears fruit. That's the challenge laid before us. We're at a, at a hinge moment, I think, in, in our lifetimes. I've, as I thought about this sermon, it's like, I don't want it to sound too, like, woo, high. And we're actually in a pretty big moment, right? In 40 years, those of us who are still around are going to look back at this period, and it's going to be a huge time marker. This is a moment then, not just because it's Lent, uh, the fifth week of Lent, but because of this moment we're in, in the history of the world and in the history of our lives, this is a hinge moment for us to ask the question, what are we about? Who do we love? And who are we being called to love bigger, bolder, and braver? Because that's what Jesus is talking about in this text. Like, the hour has come. Our hour has come once again. Every day is kind of like this, but especially this day. Our hour has come to ask, what gives glory to God? Who, I don't know how to answer this question for you, by the way. I don't know if it's a, a friend of yours, someone in your family. Maybe it's a, a group in our community or a group in our nation. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly, but we are each of us and all of us being called to love bigger, to love bolder, to love more bravely, Knowing that, yes, it may get us in trouble in some ways with some people at some times, but knowing even more than that, it will bear fruit. Thanks be to God. Amen.